of Matthew chapter 27. We're thankful for all of you that are visiting with us today. Uh, We've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, and today we're taking a break from our regular study. We're skipping all the way near to the end of the Gospel of Matthew for today's message. Uh, This Sunday, of course, is an important one on the Christian calendar because of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus did arise from the grave on a Sunday morning. And, of course, that is why we have the celebration of Easter. But rather than relegating the celebration of the Lord's resurrection to one day per year, uh, the disciples began to meet on uh, every Sunday morning in order to remind them of the salvation that they have in Christ and that that salvation is guaranteed by the fact that Christ did arise from the dead. Now, because of the nature of the way that we teach here at Berean, we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We don't always have the opportunity to preach on the resurrection of Christ every Sunday morning. But the resurrection is on our minds, just like it was for those first disciples when they came to the tomb and they found that Jesus wasn't there, but he had indeed arisen from the grave. And so today, in my message, I'm not going to concentrate mainly on the resurrection. But I do want to tell you about the event that happened before the the resurrection. In order for Christ to arise from the grave, he first of all had to go to the cross, and he had to be crucified. And when we think about salvation, we don't usually make the resurrection the first thought in our mind, but rather we go back to Christ's suffering on the cross. And the death of the cross actually becomes the focal point of our salvation. All aspects of Christianity hang on Christ's death. So that when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said to them, I I don't want to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. And what Paul was speaking of was the person of Christ. He was talking about the work that Christ came to do on the cross. And besides that, he says, I have no other purpose than to speak to you other than about what Jesus did when he went to the cross. And so today... Uh, Rather than concentrate specifically on the resurrection, I want us to go to the cross. And I want us to look at this event that preceded the resurrection, without which that we wouldn't even meet here on this Sunday morning or any other Sunday morning during the year. And so I'd like for us to see today what the cross meant to Christ and what it means to us. And so if you'll look please in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. We're going to begin reading in verse number 36. And in this passage, we're picking it up with Christ already on the cross. The nails have been driven into his hands and his feet, and a crowd has gathered to watch Jesus die. Now, if you stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew, chapter 27, verse number 36. And sitting down, they watched him there, And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we are thankful for the cross. We praise you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And we can stand here today because of that and because that Jesus has risen from the grave. Pray, Lord, that you would bless this message today. Speak to our hearts. Help us to get everything across that you'd have us to say today. I pray if there's any lost sinner here today, they might understand what Christ has done in giving his life for us. Be with us through the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In today's message, I want to show you four ways in which the cross speaks to us. The cross has something to say about the person who hung there, what happened to him. It says something about those who crucified him there. It says something about God who put him there. And then it also says something about why he was there. And we want to notice first today that the cross speaks about the person who hung there. And the one who hung there was rejected. The cross speaks of the rejection of our Lord. Now we might think that the most significant rejection of Jesus was from the men who placed him there. I mean, we just read that while Christ was hanging on the cross, that the people watched him, they reviled him, and they mocked him. Uh, They shouted curses at him. And these were the same people that had seen his miracles throughout his life. They'd heard the claims that he made. They knew that he said that he was the Son of God. And they were convinced that if he was who he said that he was, then surely he could come down from that cross. He shouldn't have been on that cross. No way that he should have been hanging there between heaven and earth. And if he was God, then certainly he did have the power to come down. Well, they rejected him as the king. They rejected him as the Messiah. They rejected him as the deliverer. And as far as they were concerned, as they looked at this man hanging on that cross, that he was a liar, he was an imposter, he was a blasphemer, and certainly he was worthy of death. But that rejection was not the most significant part of his rejection. I want you to notice again verse number 46 of this text and the cry of Jesus as he hung on the cross And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And here is the most significant part of Christ's rejection. He was forsaken by men, but more importantly, he was forsaken by God. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was studying this passage one day. And while he was deeply in the spirit and studying this, he was struck by these words. He came across them, and these were the words that shook him right down into his soul. At that time, he was writing a commentary on the death of Christ. And when he came to these words, he sat at his desk motionless. It was almost like he was in a trance. He sat there for what seemed to be an interminable period of time. And finally, he got up from his desk and he shook his head. And he asked, what can these words mean? God forsaking God. What can these words possibly mean? And Luther was perplexed by that because he knew that Jesus was God. He was God that was hanging on the cross. And he couldn't understand how that God could forsake God. 
Now, on the surface of this, we can determine what the words mean. Jesus first cried out in Hebrew. He said, Eli, Eli, which means my God, my God. And then he switched to the language of his childhood and began to speak in Aramaic. And he said, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, forsake is a very harsh word. It's a word of rejection. We know that it's terrible and your families, and you've seen it, a husband rejects his wife or a wife rejects her husband, children rejecting their parents, and how terrible it is when a, when a child is forsaken by his parents and abandoned by him. And so we understand the word forsake all too well, but we have to go deeper here than human relationships because this was the Son of God who was being rejected by his Father. Now that is the ultimate rejection. If you go back and you read the story that's leading up to this, you find that Jesus was able to endure everything that man had put on him to that point. Jesus had endured the beatings and being slapped. He took the cat of nine tails that was against his back. He he was there taking it all when the nails were driven into his hands and his feet. And through all of that suffering, everything that he went through, there was not one thing that had caused Jesus to utter a word. The prophecy in Isaiah said, He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. And so without speaking, he had endured everything that man had done. He suffered the rejection. But when he suffered the rejection from his father, that's what caused him to cry out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, to know that God the Father had forsaken him is the very thing that caused him to give utterance to his agony. I want you to notice today some particulars, first of all, about the rejection of our Lord. First, the rejection was scriptural. And this is so remarkable because while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the mind of Jesus was so saturated by Old Testament scripture that the words that he said were quotations from the Bible. David said in Psalm chapter 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. And you can go on reading in that same psalm. And as you do, you'll see that it perfectly outlines the suffering of Christ on the cross. Verses 7 and 8 speak of how he was rejected. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. In verse number 15, it speaks of his thirst. And the very next words that came out of the mouth of Jesus were, I thirst. Verse number 16 And bear in mind, this is written a thousand years before Christ was crucified. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And that was a prophecy of crucifixion before it was ever used as a means of death. And then verse number 18 speaks of how they had gambled over his clothing. And all of that tells us that the the death of Christ was no accident. Constantly in his own teachings, Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to die. He said, this is my purpose in coming to the earth. And so from a boy or from a child being born in the manger throughout his boyhood, throughout his manhood, up until the time of his public ministry, here was something that was constantly on his mind. And that means that throughout his entire life, he was anticipating the day of rejection constantly on his mind. Scripture had foretold it. He knew it, and now he was experiencing it. 
And then we also see that Christ's rejection was spiritual. And that is the worst part of the suffering. Grief of mind and agony of soul, suffering in the spirit, all of that is far worse than physical pain. You can endure a great deal of physical pain when, as long as you remain strong in your spirit and as long as you know that God is with you, you can go through a great deal of suffering. Perhaps you've had a family member who's been gravely ill and maybe they've had cancer or some other disease. I've seen Christians that go through a lot of pain and they plow through all of that pain through the physical suffering because they know that God is with them. But Jesus could not say here that God was with him because in the moment of his greatest agony, when he's facing death, the Scripture says the Father had forsaken him. Now, man, when we go through death, we can say as David did, he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. But Jesus couldn't say that. Not at this moment, because then he was alone. He was forsaken by God and by man. And while he was going through the valley of the shadow of death, God was not with him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so it was spiritual separation. It was desertion from God. And he could barely bear that thought. And that spiritual suffering was way beyond our comprehension. We have what Jesus could not have when he was rejected by the Father. Thirdly, we see that his rejection was substantial. And by that I mean that it was real. It's not something that was imaginary. It's not an illusion. Christ was not supposing that something was happening to him that wasn't true. And if you've been around much today, you hear things like this from the New Age movement, that our suffering and things that are gone wrong in our body, all of that's an illusion. And we're just, we're just thinking about these things. And what we really need to do is release ourselves from our material bodies, and then we'll have the right attitude and we'll feel so much better. But that's nonsense. Sometimes people may feel as if God has abandoned them. You get out of fellowship with God and you can't seem to find him. And you may experience this as a born-again believer. You start to pray and it seems like God is nowhere to be found. I mean, no matter how much you pray, it seems like there's a ceiling on your prayers and God has, in fact, abandoned you. But the truth of the matter is, God never abandons us. Not so with Christ. He was abandoned. God really did abandon Jesus in that moment. And so this wasn't a cry of some delirious fever. Jesus' mind was clear right up to the end. He bore up through the nails and through the suffering, all of that. But to be forsaken by God caused him to cry out. And we notice that Jesus didn't ask why he'd been denied by Peter. And he didn't ask why he'd been betrayed by Jesus he could, or by Judas. He could bear up under all of that. But here is something that is so real at that very moment that he knew he was separated from the presence of God. And friends, there is nothing as substantial as being forsaken by God. Jesus was because of sin. And I want to tell you that unless you have your sins forgiven in Christ, you are separated from God. And unless that is remedied, you'll be forever separated from God. So this was substantial It's terrible to be an outsider to God. But then also being rejected by God was very strange. 
I mean, who could believe this? I mean, is this how God treats his servants? Does God treat his children this way? Does he treat those who love him and serve him? Does God leave us? Does he abandon us? And we're not, we're not talking about here some wayward child. We're not, we're not speaking of someone who is a, a fallible child like our own or like we are. We're speaking here of the only begotten Son of God. He is the Holy One. This is the Son who is one with the Father had been one with him through all eternity. And so here is something through eons of time Jesus had never experienced. So no wonder that Luther was perplexed about it. Jesus had been one with the Father forever, one in intention, one in heart, one in love, one in plan and purpose for the entire human race. They were one, but not at this moment. And and that was so absolutely strange. To to Jesus, the love of the Father was everything. And to be without that love was devastating. How could this be? That the very Father who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is so strange that now God has forsaken him. Strange beyond strange. And then fifthly, the rejection was severe. And that's almost an understatement, I think. I mean, it was more severe for him than it could be for us because he was perfect and he was holy and we're sinful. A rupture with the Heavenly Father must have been something totally abnormal to him. It was totally painful and dreadful. It was awful. In short, we could say this is a catastrophe for Jesus. You know, we get so hardened by our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion to God that sometimes we don't even sense what it means to have fellowship with God broken. But perfect holiness knew. Jesus knew. And this was pain that couldn't be measured. He must have communion with God or else he's desolate. And so in the ultimate sense, it was severe. And so I'm telling you that there was a pain that Jesus experienced as a holy being that none of us as hardened sinners can ever experience. In degree, it's unfathomable to think of the severity of this. And that explains Gethsemane to us, doesn't it? I mean, do you remember the night before the crucifixion? That the Bible says that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and there were great drops like like blood, sweat like blood that was popping from his forehead. And Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He wasn't shrinking back from the anticipation of the cruel physical death that he would suffer. He wasn't shrinking back from the the beatings and the mockings and the cursing and the betrayal of the friends of his that he would endure. It it was the anticipation of this separation, of this rejection from God. That's what he was thinking about as he was hanging there bleeding on the cross, suffering for sin, or as he was in the garden, he was thinking about that time that was coming. And so he knew what was in that cup that he was about to drink. He knew that it contained the wrath of God, and he knew that a dreadful storm was about to be unleashed upon him. And so he knew what was going to happen to him in that six hours that he was hanging on the cross. Our text verses say, there was darkness over the earth from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. And that darkness was anticipated because the wrath of God was on its way. And so in that cup, Jesus would have to drink the undiluted wrath of God against sin. And he drank the cup. And he drank it down to its bitter dregs. Something so severe we can't even begin to fathom the depths of this. But I want you to notice something that you really must hear. I mean, on a 
Easter Sunday morning, a glorious day of resurrection, you need to hear another word that describes the person on the cross because the cross also says that the death of Christ was substitutionary. In other words, it was rejection of a holy God against our sin. And we deserve that rejection, not him. And that's why the scripture says that Jesus died in our place. He suffered for us. He experienced separation for us. He took our sins upon him. So that 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And so Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in truth, that is a rhetorical question because he knew the answer to the question. He knew why God had forsaken him. God had forsaken him because he was dying in our stead. God had forsaken him because he was hanging there in our place. And there was certainly nothing in Christ that would cause God to reject him. He was perfectly holy. He knew no sin. But because our sins had been placed upon him, he had to experience that alienation, that rejection of God. And so he bore the sinner's sin, so he also had to bear the sinner's death. And let me tell you something else. He gave absolutely full consent to that suffering and separation as if he had committed the very transgression himself. And so he never said to those that were passing by or those that were sitting down and watching him there, he never said, it wasn't me. I didn't do this. I don't deserve to be there. But instead he hung there as if he himself were the criminal, as if he had done all of it himself. And he was not put to death for his crimes. He was put to death for ours. And so it was substitutionary. And that is the stark necessity of the cross. In order for God to maintain a standard of righteousness, sin cannot go unpunished. And so if Jesus was going to bear sin, then the full wrath of a sin-hating God had to be poured out on his Son. Well, thank God that it was in our place and that it was substitutionary. And so the cross tells us something about the person that was there. It speaks to us of the rejection of Christ by his Father. But I need to go on because the cross also speaks something about those who put him there. And it speaks about the repulsiveness of our sin. The cross shows us just how repulsive sin is in the sight of God. Now, modern religion does not think this way. Today, uh, people are told that we're not so bad after all that what we really need is we need to be polished up a little bit. Uh, we need to just have a little correction in our thought, and then the goodness of man will begin to shine through. Friends, that is not the message of the cross. If you want to know how sick you are, all you have to do is look at what the doctor prescribes to cure you. If he says, take a couple of aspirins and see me in the morning, then you know it's not too serious. Uh, if he starts talking about surgery, no, it's a little bit worse. When he talks about radiation and chemotherapy, then you know you're in serious trouble. But I want you to look at the cure for sin and you see how bad sin really is. The cure for sin is the cross. That's the remedy. If you want to know how big a crime is that you've committed, you look at the punishment that the judge gives. If he gives you a slap on the wrist and he says pay a $25 fine, then you know your crime is not too serious. If he lets you off with a warning, it's not too serious. But if a sentence calls for execution, that's something else. If you have to die, that's when you pay the ultimate penalty. Now then what about sin and a man who's been put to an agonizing death for the sins of all who believe? 
That's how bad sin is. And so at the cross, we see that the wages of sin is death. And that's what Jesus was going through. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, The wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And folks, that means to be shut out. It means to be forever separated from God. Hell is a place where God turns his back forever. And there was a time when God turned his back on sin. And we find it in this text. And this is when God turned his back on his own son. And you know what that is, folks? That is hell. Here is the God-man, the infinite one who is able to experience in a finite period of time what we would have to experience in an infinite period of time. And so Jesus there hanging on the cross actually experienced all the hell that we would have to suffer should we have to die for our own sins. And it was because Jesus bore our sins that this thrice holy God could not even look upon him as he suffered in the darkness that day. And there we find the real explanation of Calvary. You see, a holy God can do no less than to judge sin wherever it's found. And on that day, it was found on Christ. And what that does, it speaks to us of the repulsiveness of our sin. And so we need not ever think that When we sin, that it's an insignificant thing. We talk about telling white lies. There is no such thing. We we think about our bad behavior and and all that we do, our cursing and our hatred and our bitterness. We think they're all insignificant. But our sins, yours and mine, all of these things of bad behavior that we excuse ourselves for are not excused by God. He put that sin on Christ and then he crucified him and he turned his back on him. Because that sin was so repulsive that God would not let even his own sin, his own son escape when that sin was transferred to him. Now, friends, that tells us that the cross speaks something about God. It speaks something about the person who was put on the cross. It speaks of the sins of the people that he died for. But it also tells us something about God. And so thirdly, it tells us about the righteousness of our God. It speaks to us about rejection, about the repulsiveness of our sin, and about the righteousness of our God. Here, God's righteousness was satisfied. God's holiness was vindicated. And here we see God's inflexible justice. We see his absolute righteousness. And the cross speaks to us, and it tells us that God hates sin. And it says, you will not have a relationship with God and have one also with sin. And so if the righteousness of God says that his own son had to die when sin was found upon him, then what do you think it means to you if sin is found in you? And so the question is, what are we going to do about sin? What what are we to do about sin that's in our life? Now, if at the cross we see how repulsive that sin is and we see how righteous that God is, then what are you going to do? Now, this is not some theology that I'm speaking to you this morning. This has to have a practical application to it. What are we going to do with this sin that God is going to judge? Now, let's suppose for a moment that your, your brother was murdered. I mean, some evil man came and he stabbed, stabbed your brother to the heart uh, with a knife. I mean, suppose that that happened. I mean, could you imagine that you would take that knife, that that you would ask the police for it, and then you would take that knife and you'd put it on your mantelpiece and you would invite all the people to come around and see the knife that killed your brother? Would you do that? 
Or would you become friends with the person who killed your brother? Is that what you would do? Now, what I'm saying to you today is that sin murdered Jesus. Sin is what put him on the cross, and it's your sin. So what are you going to do with that sin? Are are you going to stay in it? Are you going to pal around with it? I mean, are, are you going to flaunt sin in the face of God? Will you trifle with sin? You see, this is very serious business that we're speaking here. Sin causes death. We're talking about the repulsiveness of sin, and we're speaking about the righteousness of God. And the cross is speaking to us about very serious spiritual matters. And so we see the dreadful anger of a righteous, sin-hating God that's poured out on Jesus. And then that brings me to the last thought for today, and that is the reality of God's hell. Now, you heard me right. I said it's God's hell. I know sometimes we say it's the devil's hell, but that's only because hell is going to contain or hold the devil and all of his angels for all of eternity. Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And did you know that that is the cry of every lost soul for all of eternity? And you don't need to wonder about the answer to that question any more than Jesus had to wonder about the answer. He knew why God forsook him. Hell is God's place. And that's the place where he inflicts punishment for sin. I know that hell's not a popular topic. I know that... And nine out of ten churches that you would attend in this area are not going to hear anything mentioned about hell on Sunday morning, and especially not on Easter Sunday morning. Hell is not popular at all. The Easter crowd's not used to hearing about hell. But I want to ask you, how can you talk about the cross without speaking of hell? I mean, God punished Jesus for something, didn't he? I mean, he did something to him to deliver us from something, didn't he? I mean, do you think that God would turn his back on his own son and then allow him to suffer the cruelty of all that happened to him on the cross if there was not a real hell that we're being delivered from? It's preposterous. Oh, but you say, but I don't, I don't want to hear hellfire and brimstone sermons when I go to church. But you know why you need to hear one of those sermons every now and then? It's because there is a fire. It's because there is a hell. It's because there is brimstone. And the TV preacher says, well, we don't want to talk about that. Let's keep our message positive. We don't want to mention to people about sin, and we don't want them thinking about death and hell. There's just too much negativity in preaching today. You don't want to think about it? What do you think that Jesus was thinking of when they spat on him and when they beat him with the whips? What do you think that he was thinking about when they pushed a crown of thorns deep into his head? What do you think Jesus was thinking about when they drove nails into his hands and his feet? He was thinking about sin and he was thinking about hell and the fact that each of us has committed the ultimate crime against God. He was thinking of an eternal hell that he came to save sinners from. Now, the cross speaks of the righteousness of God, and it says that it must be satisfied, and Christ must do this by suffering hell for us, or else we're thrown in, and we punish, or we perish in the fires of hell forever. Now, you can't speak of the cross unless you speak of the rejection of the person that died there. And you can't speak of the cross without seeing the repulsiveness of our sin. And you can't speak of the cross without seeing the righteousness of God. And you cannot speak of it without knowing the reality of hell. You see, before you ever get to the resurrection, before you ever get to the crown that's been won by Christ, the victory that's been won by him, you have to go through the cross. 
Don't ever listen to a preacher who, who pretends to know anything about the suffering of Christ unless he also preaches the equivalency of that suffering. You see, the cross means nothing at all if there is no hell. If hell is not real and the righteousness of God does not be to satis- need to be satisfied, then we don't need a cross. Jesus died on the cross because of sin and hell. But, of course, it's Easter, and so we don't want to leave Jesus on the cross, and we don't want to leave him in the tomb. In this church, you won't find a crucifix because we don't leave Jesus on the cross. The cross is empty, just as empty as the tomb. Now, Jesus died for sin. He was put into the grave. But the full approval of God was not put on the work of the cross until God raised him from the dead. If you go back to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, we read Psalm 16, verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Christ's body could not corrupt in that grave because the full victory over death was not won until he came out of the tomb. Now, do you know what that says? Christ cried out from the cross, and he said more than, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because finally Christ came to the end of God's forsakenness. He had paid the full penalty for our sins. And so after that, when it was all paid for, Jesus said, It is finished. And then when he said it's finished, then he could say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And at that moment, Jesus gave up his life, and his spirit then was reunited with the Father. And so that spiritual union had been reestablished. His body would go into the grave and stay there for three days, but spiritually, Jesus was already reunited with his Father in heaven. Sin was no longer on him. He'd finished it all. He paid for it all. The penalty of sin is fully paid. And friends, that's what Christ has done for the sins of all who believe in him. And so the cross speaks to us. There is no crown before the cross. You have no victory in your life without the cross. And so what you need to do today is to let the cross speak to you. To see the rejection and the repulsiveness and the righteousness and the reality. Jesus Christ satisfied God for your sin. And if you believe that, it's true. Without trusting him, hell is your reality. Now, I'm glad that you came today, and I'm glad that you heard this message, but I would be much happier if you leave today having believed this in your heart. The Scripture says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart... Man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. May it never be that one day you cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so I pray today that the cross of Christ would speak each of these words to you that we brought out in the message. And I pray that this might be a message that you take into your own heart. Now today, at the close of our service, we we have people that will stand by in the back of our building and 
if you need to talk about these things, if you realize that this sin is still on you, that you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, that something needs to be done about that, then we can talk to you about that today and we can help you to understand more about what it means to trust in Christ as your personal Savior. We have people that are here to talk to you about if you need to be baptized, if you need to be in fellowship, to come into fellowship with the church, you need a church home, whatever that might be. We want you to leave today understanding what Jesus has done on the cross for you and that, that the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that you'll go home to be with Jesus when you die. You must believe him. That's the message of the cross. And without him, hell is a reality for you. Don't leave here today in that condition. Trust him as Savior. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to bring this message today. And Lord, as we think about seeing Jesus hanging on the cross and what he did for us, may we truly understand in our hearts how repulsive that our sin is in your sight, that sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross, and we do not want that sin to be left upon us. We thank you, Lord, that there is a message here. The gospel of salvation says that that sin can be taken away from us. You promised us that by faith in your blood, trusting what Jesus did upon that cross, that you take all of our sins away, that Christ has paid for all of that sin, and we don't have to bear it ourselves. What a wonderful story that that is. I, I just pray, Lord, that you would speak that truth to someone's heart today. And then all of us as Christians here today that have been saved, that we think back on the cross and we just ever rejoice because of what you've done for us. Help us to give that message to others. Bless us now as we sing, Lord. Speak to some heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.